I've heard about Jesus and him being the Messiah all my life. As the ruler of the synagogue, I've literally heard about it all my life. All the teachers, they all say that when the Messiah comes, that he'll bring a, bring a kingdom and he'll bring deliverance. And he'll finally get these Romans off our back. And so they say to wait. And that's all they do is wait. But not me. No, no. I've made a name for myself. I've worked hard. I have labored. And I'm a wealthy man. As a matter of fact, I'm a very wealthy man. They call me the rich young ruler. And that's what I am. Now listen, I'm a good guy. Honestly, I'm a good guy. You know, the the big things, I mean, I've kept those, you know, like all my life, I've kept the law. You know, as far as the big things, you can ask my parents. I mean, they'll tell you, I've been a good guy all my life. I really have. But even so, something's missing. Something isn't quite right. I see people who have it. And it's not the right kind of people who have it. It's the poor people. It's the people without that seem to have it, and I don't. It's like a fog that hangs over me all the time. And if I'm honest, some of my wealthy friends, they've got it too. They say Jesus is coming to town. They say he knows things that nobody else knows. They say he does things that nobody should be able to do. Maybe I'll ask him. Teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Murder? Well, I've never done that. No adultery? I'm I'm good to go. Lying? Stealing? Listen, what I have, I got through my own hard work. No problem there. I think I'm good, Jesus. I think I'm good. One thing? What? Tell me. Tell me. Sell, sell all my possessions, sell what I have, and give to the poor, and follow you? That's ridiculous, and it ain't never going to happen.
Idolatry is a tough thing. It really is. When you're stuck in idolatry, you may not even know it. You can excuse your idols very easily. Because you live in it all the time. It's like the frog in the pot. And your idols actually feed you, don't they? They feed your flesh. So in truth, when you have idols, and we all do, we like them. We love them. We want more of them. You know, the uh, American idols are interesting to think about. What does America idolize? And I made a list of four idols. And you probably could add to this, but as I look at us, as I look at Americans, as I look at me in the mirror, I see a desire for prosperity. I want it. It's an idol, prosperity. I see an idol of freedom. I want to do what I want to do with my time and with my belongings and with my energy. There's also an idol of privacy that says, let me go in my house and shut the door and you leave me alone and give me my time and give me my whatever. And then there's just the good old-fashioned idol of security, of knowing what your future will hold and how you'll be when it comes. Folks, America has an idolatry problem. And man has an idolatry problem. And Jesus said this, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul wrote this, All those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now listen, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Corinth was a city, was a culture that was very much like America. Very much like what we live in today. They were consumed with the same things that consume us. Wealth, prosperity, beauty, education, sex, freedom. These things were were running the lives of the Corinth believers And then the gospel came. Paul brought the gospel into Corinth. And people turned from their idols to serve the living God. As happens over and over and over again. That's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 9, talking about the believers in Thessalonica who made the same change from idols to the living God. And so what I want to do for the next 30 minutes is I want to call you to kill the idol in your life. To kill it. 
to push it over, to push over the idol, and to know that you'll have to kill it again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Because the reality is it will rob us of our soul. It will rob us of our joy. And Paul said it can rob us of our faith. This is a big deal. So how do we kill the idolatrous nature of man? How do we kill this this hunger and this, this want for more? I'll tell you the only antidote... The only antidote that I know of to kill this idol of materialism. And that's generosity. That's it. Generosity will kill these idols. Generosity will, being generous with your time will kill the idol of yourself and your desire to run your life. Give it away. Generosity of your energy will kill the idol of yourself and your desire to do what you want to do. Generosity with your dollars will kill the idol of wealth in your life. But then it'll resurrect before your eyes and you'll have to kill it again. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And let me show you some things that Paul had to say to these believers who were battling against the idol of idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul introduces some instruction to the church. 16, verse number 1, Paul says this. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia... So you also are to do. So Paul now is going to instruct this this church, these believers, who are involved in a very, very consumer-driven society that has the idol of materialism there in their faces. And he says, I want you to be generous. I want you to be generous. And this is how you are to do it. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So what he's saying is I want you as God sort of blesses in your life and provides for you. You manage your life and manage your resources so you can kill the idol of materialism in your life and give it unto God. The Lord. Folks, generosity is a spiritual issue. And we live in a culture that fights against generosity. And like the rest of our culture, at times, our, our, our favorite church in all the world, Centerpoint Bible Church, we struggle with generosity. We do. Sometimes we struggle to give up our time. Sometimes we struggle to give up our freedom. Sometimes we struggle to give up our dollars. Sometimes we struggle to give up our energy. And we need to recognize that this is an issue of our spiritual condition. 
and stinginess and materialism and me holding everything for myself is a form of idolatry. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and and that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time, is we're going to look at what Paul had to say here and see some principles of generosity. And you need to know that this applies to a lot of areas of your life. This applies to your energy, to your your dollars, to your time. But in this context, in chapters 8 and 9 of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there's no doubt about it that Paul is talking about our money. He is. And if we're going to really be true and point people to Jesus Christ in his word, we have to point people to this section of God's word as well. We can't hold this back and say, well, this might offend somebody. If we talk about money, this might offend them. Folks, we point to Jesus Christ and what else? His word. So we will see what does God's word have to say about our generosity. Let's start reading verse number one of chapter eight. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, again, as we said, this church is not in Macedonia. Corinth is not in Macedonia. So now Paul is telling the believers in Corinth what is happening, how God is working in a church 100 miles away. He's saying this is what the grace of God has looked like there. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And there is no doubt about it that Paul is purposely trying to bring up terms that conflict with one another. Did you see him? Poverty and wealth together. That's what he's doing here. This time of affliction and joy together. He's saying you can be poor and you can be afflicted and you can be struggling and you can be overflowing with generosity and joy. Some of the most saddest people that you will ever find on the planet earth are those that have a great deal of things held close to their chest. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't interact a lot with those people. I don't. But you know who I do interact with? And I got nobody in mind. I'm not talking about you. I interact with people who don't have a lot. Who don't have a lot. As far as the world's standards are concerned. They don't drive, you know, cars that cost more than my house or they don't drive they don't live in homes that our homes could fit inside, okay? But they have a joy. They they have an overabundance of joy. And they're wealthy in the things that really matter. And they're generous with their love and they're generous with their time and they're generous with their possessions and when I walk away from them I think they're like God the most generous person in all of time is God 
See what, see what God is saying here through Paul's mouth, through his pen. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. A generous nature is the evidence of God's grace in our life. When God has worked in our lives, we are generous with others. Be it with whatever we have, we're willing to share that because we know that God was generous with us. You see, this this act that Paul was talking about is a display of God's grace. It's an evidence of God's grace in their life. God's grace has worked. And so now they are generous because their nature has changed. You were born a self-centered, selfish person. Have you ever been around a two-year-old? There's nobody more selfish. And that was you. I want something to eat now. I don't want to go to bed now. I want to go to bed now. I want to watch this show now. I don't want to watch this show now, right? Self, self, self. That was you 30 years ago. Or 50 or 70, whatever. And so your average 72-year-old has had 70 years to practice selfishness. To practice self-centeredness. And you get really, really good at it. Until the grace of God comes. So you show me a man or a woman who's generous... Not because it's cool, not because they were moved by the influence of someone else that guilted them into it, but I mean in the midst of affliction and suffering and even poverty, extreme poverty, and they're generous. And I say that's the evidence of God's grace. He goes on, it's a source of joy. Notice that? In their life, they have this abundance of joy, and that word is a word that's usually used for wealth. You see what Paul is doing here? He's trying to say, oh, they're wealthy. They are poor, but they're wealthy in joy. They've got piles, they've got piles of currency, of joy. It's evidence of God's grace. It's a source of joy. And look at verse number five. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. See, generosity, true God-led, by faith, the Lord prodding, not man-manipulating, but God-moving generosity is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. So some of you live this out regularly, I know. But others of us need to be challenged in the area of our generosity. Let me, from the passage here, point out some pitfalls to watch out for. They're going to start here in verse number five. Some obstacles along the way that that Paul points out, okay? First of all, in verse number five, he says, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God. You know, the number one issue we have with with generosity is ourself. It's ourself. It's me. I want to be the God of my world, I expect you and everybody else, God included, to be revolving around me, right? That's my nature. 
I've had 46 years to practice that. Without the grace of God, you see it in my life. And that's what Paul is saying here. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They, they gave themselves to the Lord and said, God, I am yours. You have bought me with a price. The greatest act of worship is this giving of ourselves to God. We're not to conform anymore to the pattern of this world. But we're to give God this worship of ourselves. That's our spiritual act of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. He goes on into verse number six. Look what he says. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Here's what he means. Paul's saying, I've sent Titus to you because the believers in Corinth were moved of God that they were going to give to God. They were going to be generous. They were going to help support the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They are Gentiles. Can you get that? They're Gentiles. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem are struggling. So the Gentiles said, let's give to them. And what happened was, some time went by, and they shrank back. And so Paul says, I'm going to send Titus to you. And when he comes, his job is to remind you to be generous. You see, what I'm doing right now you may not, some of you may not like it, but there's a long history of precedent to what I'm doing right now. An obstacle to our generosity is just getting distracted. That's what's happening here. They got distracted. They got distracted. I mean, I can understand they're surrounded by the world. They're surrounded by a culture that lives for themselves. And they got distracted. God moved in their heart. When Paul was there, God prodded their heart. And God said, I want you to give toward this. I want you to be generous toward this. And they said, okay, God, a grace of God has happened, and we're going to do that. Yes. And then time went by. Time went by. And they got distracted. And now they got to be reminded. And listen, that doesn't just happen with our dollars. We've seen it happen with people. I've seen it happen in ministry. Some of you may feel like maybe this is me. And I want to challenge you on that. There was a time when there were people who were investing what God was doing. And I saw a joy in you. I saw a passion in you for setting up chairs, for teaching children down the hallway, for pointing teenagers to Jesus Christ, for prayer. Forgiving, maybe. And you've got distracted. And listen, hear, hear the words of Titus. Hear the admonition of Paul. Hear the call of God. Be faithful. Be faithful to complete what God has started in you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Keep pointing people to Christ. Keep investing your life in what really matters. Keep going against the current. Everybody else is saying live for yourself. Buy this thing for yourself. Find this experience for yourself. Do this thing. You'll find joy. The advertisers, the the materialism pushers, they call to us. Don't be distracted by it. Be faithful. Next, look at seven and eight. This is really interesting. 
Paul writes, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, what is he saying? What is Paul, what is Paul pointing out to these believers in Corinth? That another obstacle that we as humans do is we compartmentalize. We compartmentalize. And he's saying, you guys got it when it comes to faith. Thumbs up for you. You've got it when it comes to speech. Well, you know what to say. You know the word of God and you proclaim it. Thumbs up. You've got it when it comes to knowledge. Thumbs up to you. All right. You've got an earnestness. I mean, you really are passionate about Jesus. Thumbs up for you. And then things start to change. He says, and you are really, really loved by us. And I believe all the Corinth believers are like, hmm, wait a minute. He just changed something there. What's Paul trying to say? He's saying that we're excelling in these areas. We're excelling. But he just changed it. And he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul's saying, don't compartmentalize. Don't tell yourself, I can be okay here, 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 and here, and I can shut the door into this area of my life, and God's okay with that. No. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. We can't compartmentalize and say, I'm okay in all the other areas except this one. See, what's wrong with that? Let me tell you what's wrong with that. When Jesus comes into your life, he changes your nature, see. He doesn't just change your actions. He changes your nature. So when I come out this door and I do love and earnestness and, and speech and knowledge and all that kind of stuff, but then I go into this door and shut the door where I'm not seen, where I'm not on display, my nature at that moment is being revealed. Integrity is what you do when nobody's looking, right? We can't compartmentalize. God won't have that. God is a jealous God. Now let me tell you what that means. That doesn't mean that God sees your ability to play football and says, I wish I could play football like that. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean he sees your nice shiny car and thinks, I want that car. That's, that's, not, that's what it might mean for you to say a person is jealous or envious. But that's not what it means when God says that he is jealous. You might see some translations, this will help you. You might see some translations that instead of translating that word jealous, God is a jealous God. There's at least one translation that translates it, God is a zealous God. Now the translators aren't playing a rhyming game on you. That's not what that is. When God says that he is a jealous God, 
What it means is this. He demands his rightful place. That's what it means. That he will be second to no one. That's why Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. A jealous husband is one that will not share. A jealous God is one that will not share. We can't compartmentalize. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, it's beautiful what Paul is doing here in the language. He's, he's, bringing, he's bringing these terms that conflict with one another. Rich, poor, wealthy. Back and forth he goes over and over and over. And what he's driving at here, and the obstacle we got to watch out for, is apathy. Is apathy. And here's how we get apathetic. Here's how we get apathetic. When we lack in generosity, our apathy is showing itself because we no longer care about the needs of other people. We no longer care. Let me challenge you in another area apart from money. Apart from your money. There are people in this church who need to be discipled. Who need to be taught. Who need to know who Jesus is. And some of you excel in knowledge, in speech, in earnestness. You know the gospel forward, backward, inside out. You've been kicking around this stuff for years, for decades. But when it comes to sharing that, when it comes to sharing that with others, our generosity dries up. And when something dries up, it shrinks and it falls to the ground and it dies. Paul here is saying, remember the cross. Remember what Jesus did. They claim they're rich. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 8. Paul says, you say we are rich. Paul says, you're not rich. Jesus was rich. He was rich. And he became poor for your sake. Careful of apathy. Careful of apathy. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Give your treasure of your time, the treasure of your pocketbook, the treasure of your counter to the work of God so your heart will be there also. And I look around the room and I am very grateful for many of you who do this. You've invested, you've invested your life in what God is doing and don't you shrink back you will not regret it. You're, you're, you're never going to outgive the Lord. So you don't think I'm pulling a Joel Osteen on you. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm not telling you that he's now going to increase your riches when you give your dollars to the work of God. You know that's not true. 
But I want to be rich in memories, in the experience of God, in knowledge of what he can do. I want to be rich in those things, not in money. That's the grace of God in a life, see? Watch out for that one. And then verse 10. Some of you already are here. Look at verse number 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Who a year ago started not to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. See, another obstacle to watch out for. Another thing that trips us up. A pitfall that shrinks back our generosity. Is cynicism. It's cynicism. See, these cynics are starting to say, oh yeah, Paul, you want our money. I get it. Oh, the other foot is dropping. Okay, now you want our money. I see how this works. The old bait and switch. You brought Jesus, and now you want our dollars. And I understand. I understand that. The temptation to that. We're surrounded by people who manipulate, often in the name of God, Have you seen the thing that will make you put your fists through your computer monitor when you see the the 10 homes, the most expensive 10 homes of American pastors? Have you seen this clickbait that comes onto your Facebook list? I know, it's disgusting. But don't let that create a cynic heart in you. This is to our benefit to give. It's to our benefit to be generous. It's to our benefit to kill the idol today and to kill the idol tomorrow and to kill the idol the next day. It's to our benefit because idolatry kills. It destroys. It dries up. It falls to the ground and dies. And then verse 13. Paul writes, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. See, hear that cynicism still coming through? You see what the cynic's saying? Oh, yeah, so I'm going to give my money to the poor people in Jerusalem. Let them get a job and take care of themselves. Really? Are you calling for fairness? Are you going to look at the God of the universe and say, God, I want fairness here. Let's just, let's just cut right to the chase. I want things to be fair. You know where fairness lands you, right? Thank God he's not fair. He's just. But thank God he's not fair because fairness would find me and you in hell. So he says here, for if the readiness is there, it's acceptable, okay? I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, 13, But that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness there. As is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. He would say, what is going on here? Paul is reminding them of the children of Israel wandering around in the desert. Forty years. 
Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes were divinely protected and they never wore out. And they'd wake up every single morning and they'd get out of their tent and they'd walk out in the desert and all over the ground was this white substance. And they said, what is this? Translated in Hebrew is manna. Manna. And they would eat it. And that's how they lived for 40 years. And every once in a while, the rich young ruler, the very industrious young man, would run out and say, man, I'm grabbing two buckets. I'm going to save a bunch of this stuff up. And then tonight, when my neighbor gets a little hungry, I'll offer him some manna maybe. Hey, yeah, that's a good idea. So he gathered up extra. And guess what would happen to his extra? Spoiled, worthless, inedible. What is God saying here to us? What's the obstacle? What's, what's the thing that we to watch out for? We need to realize that our, our stinginess, our lack of generosity, it robs us from the experience of seeing the miraculous provision of God. It's, it's when I give to God and he comes through in a major way. And then I say, he is real. He's real. He provided for me. I served when I was tired. I preached when I didn't want to. I served when I was just worn out. I didn't want to go there, but I went anyway and God delivered. God came through. I gave when I didn't have it. I said, God, you led me to do this. I'm going to do it. So I did, and God provided for me. These people who have that kind of experience, I dare you to try try to tell them there is no God. And watch them laugh in your face. Because they've seen this happen. They've seen God come through. And so they are filled with joy. Give. Give of your life. Don't believe the culture around you. You realize that they are being paid to deceive you, right? You know that, right? When that advertisement comes on and it flashes the car in front of your eyes or the home in front of your eyes or the dude living out his retirement in such joy and wonderful peace... You know they're being paid to deceive you, right? You realize that? They're professional liars. Your maker says, you cannot serve God in money. That's our father. So here's what I want to do this morning. Some of you may not have came prepared to give this morning. That's fine. I don't care. Okay? We're going to have the offering at the end of our service today. And I just want to, be, I want to answer the cynic. It's not because I think you're going to give more. I don't want you to do that. Some people come here today, as 1 Corinthians 16 said, cheerfully ready to give. And I want to remind you of why we give before you give. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask our praise team to come on up here and get ready to sing, lead us in a song. And after I'm done praying and we're standing, worship the Lord.
we're going to cheerfully worship with our giving. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your grace that's new today. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that struggles with this. Lord, all of us do. We know it well. Oh, the wretched man that I am who will save me. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver us from the idolatry of materialism, Lord. Deliver us from the idolatry of self that calls, calls, calls for our attention. And instead, may we give you your rightful due and worship you today in song, in giving, with our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.